Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to this first episode of The Crypt of 2022. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your hosts and I'm joined by India Block, The Crypt's Crow crow host. (laughs) Your Raven correspondent. (laughs) Ah, does I. Uh, Hi India, how are you? Never more. Um, I'm I'm good, thank you. I actually I do wish I was a crow because they are one of my favourite birds. I'm going to think about little else for the duration of the podcast, other than I accidentally said crow host. It's going to play on my mind, and I'm going to beat myself up about it. But it's nice to be back, and it's been quite a full January of design news. Actually, often the often the design calendar starts quite slowly, sort of warms up after the new year, but. It's been a, a a rich, full house of news so far for January. Yes, we've been catapulted straight in. There's been no gentle lead up. Usually we get our kind of two lull points around August and around January. But I think uh, the times are changing. As I say, we've got a lot to cover. So let's press on with the episode. So first up, we have a story that I have picked out that um, eagle-eyed or eagle-eared listeners, I should say, may remember from our roundup of last year that you had managed to forget NFTs, Ollie, which is surely a blissful experience that I can't imagine has continued into the first months of January. (laughs) No, they're everywhere suddenly, aren't they? In the design world, you can't move for flipping NFTs, jostling you around. So what's happening with uh, NFTs now beyond beyond there being ubiquitous? Well, an awful lot, but I thought an interesting place to start with the topic was the great Wikipedia editor debate. So the Wikipedia editors were debating the list of most expensive artworks by living artists. So this is artists who have been alive at the time that their piece of work has gone up for sale. And... <laughs> Did you did you just explain the concept of living to our listeners? Well, <laughs> I think it's not a very good title because obviously all artists were living at some point. That's true. That's true. I'm being I'm being uh, snarky. I'm being cheeky because it's New Year, <laughs> and I'm still giddy on all the fizz I had. So you have your Jeff Goons, your Damien Hurst, your David Hockneys. Um, your big boys. Your big boys, big boys of art. And we can sit around and we can debate um, just how uh, valuable the art of Damien Hurst and Jeff Koons are, because Lord knows the critics love to. The problem arose, though, when it was put up for debate whether some recent massive crypto sales kind of coming in at 69 million, at over $91 million should be included on this list because these sales technically went to pieces of art or a collection of artwork sold as one unit behind one token. And um, it wasn't actually an aesthetic decision, as far as I understand it. The editors just felt that when an NFT is up for sale, it's the token itself that is being purchased and not the piece of art behind it. However, of course, this has been repeated in headlines everywhere saying that uh, Wikipedia has decided that NFTs aren't art, which has understandably upset a lot of people who have invested uh, sizable sums in, in this art for the metaverse. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. And the token distinction is is quite knotty to get your head around. I mean, my feeling is I still I still don't quite understand why it hasn't been classed as art, because I would just think, well, NFTs, I may not like it as a medium, but as a medium, it does just result in these tokens. You have the original files from which the tokens are produced. And, you know, art manifests in lots of different ways. I don't quite understand why they want to draw that super sharp distinction between the original media and then the tokens which are produced from it, because it just strikes me as... Well, if you're talking about NFTs, you just have to accept that these tokens are the result of it. Yes, it's tricky because I would say the opposite. And I do think that the token is separate from the art because it's the token that is the valuable thing. It's the token that says you are the sole owner of it. The the image, as has been proven by, her, you know, for example, Twitter having NFT profile pictures. The problem is, is that anyone can right click and save a JPEG and then they have the piece of art. This isn't like art in a gallery where you have to creep in and steal the Mona Lisa if you want to own the Mona Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not suggesting our listeners get into art heists. Please do not sue me. Well, that would be quite exciting. It would be quite an exciting development of the Chris if we if we began commissioning art heists. But look, I mean, I don't think it's a perfect parallel, but no one has a problem with saying individual prints from a run, like from an edition, are artworks in their own right. Now, I'm not saying that's quite the same as a token on an NFT, but as to why they are totally different, that I'm not so clear on. I think that's interesting that you brought up print runs, because another interesting case study that definitely comes down on the side of NFTs being art is the British Museum flogging off some of its Turner paintings and as NFTs. <laughs> I must admit, I don't think those are art. You do- <laughs> Whatever the definition is, I think <laughs> making tokens of Turner pieces, somehow that doesn't do it for me. Really? But yeah. I mean, so they've done it in limited editions. So there's not one there's not one person that owns one NFT of one Turner. There's kind of a couple of people that will own an NFT. But I feel owning an NFT of a Turner is, I mean, maybe this is my terribly old-fashioned view of the art market, but I would want the NFT of the Turner so that I could decorate my future metaverse mansion with a Turner. So would you just sort of quietly log in each evening walk across your living room, have a look at the turn. I thought, oh, that's very good, isn't it? Have well, a- he, is the, he is the painter of light, after all. And then uh, log off safe in, safe in your artwork. Yeah, just have a little, little virtual whiskey nightcap while staring at my art. But I suppose it goes to show quite how much the framing of the ways in which um, pieces of culture are presented shapes it. So when you have the producing uh, NFTs of Turner of an artwork which was created a long time ago, in my mind, I think, oh, it just sounds like expensive postcards in the museum shop. It, it doesn't kind of resonate with me. Whereas when we look at some of these big NFT art sales of sort of contemporary work, I suppose because you have all the apparatus of the auction house around it, you have the money flooding in, part of me thinks, well, I might not like it. I might not like that art. I might think it's bad art, but it feels like art somehow. The fact it's a sort of original work being produced, presented in that context. But, you know, I don't know whether those contextual differences are ultimately whether they ultimately matter all that much. It it just shows how hard it is to sort of pick your way through. 
Yeah, that's true, because these were sales that went through Christie's, so they, you know, they weren't being sold on some crypto-only platform. They were done through these very traditional modes of art auctioneering. And, I mean, I agree. I think it's uh, more interesting to have new and original pieces of art being sold as NFTs as opposed to what unfortunately seems to be happening with a lot of the crypto market in general, which is just the same old institutions and uh, companies and corporations who are cashing in. Although there definitely are still the designers that uh, are hoping that this will be a a new mode, a new way forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And let's turn now to an example of one of those designers, because when you talk about NFTs and the metaverse in the context of design, as, as sure as day follows night, your mind turns to Andres Reisinger, um, who's a Barcelona-based designer who I think was one of the most prominent early designers, at least, playing around with this technology. But the reason I want to speak about Andres is he has very recently launched a new project, which is Winterhouse. Now, Winterhouse is a virtual residence, so it's a residence you could install in a metaverse and walk around. And it's it you know it's very tasteful it's meant to be styled to resemble the work of Dieter Rams his furniture it's a sort of very minimalist heavily glazed house and he's rendered it within a snowy forest so this sort of beautiful alpine forest all around and then this digital house which he's created have you seen it india I have, I have, because we have an interview with him up on our website, and... Oh, I'd, I'd forgotten that was going to be live. Now I look very stupid. <laughs> In the yeah. future, when this, when this edition goes out, I'm in two minds, because on the one hand, this is very Andrus. He's got that beautiful quality of light, this kind of zeitgeisty... Uh, way he works with Millennial Pink, which I adore. However, it is, it's slightly more earthly, it's more grounded, it's, it's a house, it's a house that you could build if you had a lot of money. Oh, it's very plausible. It could be in a James Bond film or something, quite easily. Bond could go there with a lady after the mission. Yes, it's got a lovely um, floating fireplace in a swanky pink sunken living room perfect for the are we talking about the bond girl that gets killed off or the kind of the final girl bond girl (laughs) i mean in a sense she's still killed off she's sort of sacrificed to bond's libido (laughs) to, to appease bond it sort of reminds me of something you'd get on the sims the some beautiful house that you would build and then share to download online with your equally nerdy pals it it's beautiful and I like looking at it but there's nothing in there that defies the laws of gravity or physics or what is possible and I I kind of thought that the metaverse was meant to be I don't know I guess somewhere where you could be a little bit more free from these constraints Right. But I suppose this is part of Andres's argument and his argument as to how design ought to be using NFTs and sort of digital design. 
because he has purposefully made this house feel quite concrete and quite capable of being made in physical reality because he thinks the metaverse has a bad reputation. He thinks designers view it as um, a sort of domain for teenagers and games and so on. Whereas his argument is that designers should be using digital worlds as a test ground, that what you should do is create your designs digitally, see what people make of them. If you get useful feedback, incorporate it and check out check out if there's some demand for the thing you're trying to create um, before you actually create it. Now, Andres, I think, links this also to issues around sort of um, material stewardship is it material no I suppose like ecological stewardship by we shouldn't just be building things for the sake of it and if you have a digital world test things find out what we really need and then you can build it now I think that's problematic because we all know some of the environmental costs of digital but it's an interesting idea I suppose this sense of digital represents a different way of working and an opportunity to try some things out before fully committing. Is it an argument you have much patience with, India? I thought it was a very interesting position because on the one hand, I can actually see that capitalising on this new enthusiasm for the metaverse uh, could be a way of satisfying that consumerist urge. I mean, may... Maybe it's just me, but sometimes I like to, you know, do online shopping, fill my basket with everything I want, and then just close out the tab. And that that pings that part of my brain that wishes to uh, acquire the shiny new things. And then I don't actually have to spend the money on it. So on the one hand, I can see that. And, you know, I love The Sims. I love my Animal Crossing island. That kind of urge to decorate within a game world, I can see that being satisfying and I can see sort of the economic argument that, you know, we shouldn't be keeping vast amounts of products in stock that aren't needed um, and that will be destroyed because they might impact the brand if they were sold at lower prices or um, sold off to kind of outlets but I'm not sure that that's what's going to happen with Mm. the metaverse I I don't think it will reorganize the global economy in a way that benefits the planet and benefits the masses but then I don't know if I'm just being horribly cynical you're right I think Andres's idea is a really nice one whether it's realistic I don't know whether you're going to get a situation where small independent designers can test out interesting things and then get commissions. It strikes me as a little bit optimistic. And one of the reasons I think that is this month also brought the news that Microsoft had agreed a $68.7 billion deal for Activision Blizzard. Um, Now, for anyone who doesn't know very much about video games, Activision Blizzard are one of the big publishers they are not necessarily particularly creatively interesting or doing really um, innovative, exciting games, but they're behind some very big franchises. So this is the company behind Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Candy Crush. They're a money-making machine. Uh, I mean, King, which is their mobile division, brought in one billion in operating profits over the last year. If you look at Call of Duty... um, 
that's reported to have more than 100 million monthly players. So these are digital designers who have a huge audience. And Microsoft have explicitly said that they've done this deal, and I quote, because it will play a key role in the development of metaverse platforms. Now, I don't know about you, but my feeling upon seeing this is, oh, this this is probably the direction in which the metaverse or metaverses are going to go, isn't it? It's not going to be that exciting playground, Andre says. It's going to be huge brands buying up huge digital designers to create sort of money-making machines, really. Yeah, I'm again in two camps because on the one hand, I do really uh, subscribe to the opinion that video games are one of our most exciting and newest forms of culture, of art, of storytelling. I really think they're such an exciting medium. So to see, I mean, obviously, these are not the indie developer underdogs, but to see them being appreciated outside of an esports arena is interesting. Uh, but yes, I do feel that the the crypto metaverse gold rush is now becoming a lot of big corporations thinking that they need to get a foot into this virtual world. It's almost these kind of flag planting exercises so that if we do all migrate to the metaverse, then they will have a presence there but also Mm. this is not a risky venture for microsoft if they're just buying this company that does huge games that have already proved to make loads of money and also it's i don't pretend to know a huge amount about mergers but this is kind of another monopoly isn't it this is like amazon buying out all of the brands that do kind of useful and interesting things with algorithms so that they can own everything that the metaverse is just going to be owned by five gigantic tech companies and that'll be it. Yeah, I think that's the fear. I agree with you that video games are an important area and I do think designers in other fields should be looking at them because if we're all talking about digital worlds at the moment, the type of designers who frankly have the most experience doing this sort of thing are the people working with video games and having a look at the video games of today is probably a fairly decent guide as to the metaverses of tomorrow. Like if you look at what's the thing that's really popularised, at least in sort of wider public discourse, this idea of the metaverse, it's probably Fortnite, right? And this, like, people going on there, having concerts on it, live events being staged in there. But I, I don't think there's much as you say, room for encouragement in this deal. Because if if we're looking at video game worlds and what they might say about where we're going with the metaverse, I probably wouldn't want the guys behind Call of Duty to be planning my future digital life. And I don't even think that's that controversial. No, I don't don't want the people who specialise in making accurate AK-47s and all of this. Like, those probably aren't the skills... I'd want to see represented in a, in a future digital world. So it, it leaves me slightly uneasy. You don't want to be fighting zombie Nazis on your commute to work. Oh, well, of course I want to be fighting zombie Nazis on my route for work. I took that as a given, India. Everyone wants to be fighting zombie Nazis on their route to work. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, jokes aside, we can't get too deep into this conversation without flagging that they are some very real world ramifications of this and not just I mean it's kind of a given that everyone understands that 
this digital world is incredibly data heavy, bandwidth heavy, it burns an awful lot of fuel just to create every single coin or item that there is there is no cost even though we know that environmentally there there's no such thing as a free lunch you can create these things in the metaverse in games but there will be physical requirements electricity to run it data centers servers equipment chips but we're also seeing our first kind of civil unrest as it were which is um the situation in kazakhstan which i'm sure you've heard about i have yeah it's uh it's quite frightening really what's what's been going on there there were sort of power outages weren't there and then huge civil unrest as a result i think the government resigned uh violence against protesters a a really desperate situation earlier in january i believe things have stabilized a little now but really quite frightening at the start of the year the situation in Kazakhstan is uh, it's complex geopolitically, but last year um, in kind of May April time, China banned cryptocurrency mining, um, and previously it had been a a hub of people who set up uh, large amounts of computing equipment and mine. So it's an extractive process, but it's Obviously, you're not mining them out of the ground, you're kind of mining them out of the virtual ether. That was banned, and a lot of these crypto miners relocated to Kazakhstan. Yeah, I think it's now the second largest uh, centre for Bitcoin mining in in the world after the United States. Sort of 18% of global Bitcoin mining is is happening in Kazakhstan now. Mm -hmm. Which is this kind of interesting globalisation effect as well, that a lot of people in the West are buying up these cryptocurrency coins, these virtual real estates, but they are being mined in less economically developed places. Um, So there is already this kind of power dynamic. And with China kicking out the miners, this sudden boom in Kazakhstan, we believe, put a vast amount of pressure on their power grid in kind of October time so going into winter obviously more people are using their power and they were rolling blackouts throughout towns and villages across I think kind of six regions of Kazakhstan and you know I mean these things as important infrastructure features are quite under wraps um, but it's understood that three power stations actually went down because of the of the problems associated with this massive amount of extra energy. It had this domino effect that led to widespread unrest, state violence, and then intervention from Russia, which has fed into a a more complicated scenario in general. But I don't think this is a a one-off. I think we'll be seeing we'll be seeing more of this. So I mean, it's really quite a frightening situation. And I think this just goes to show how complex all of this digital world is. There's a huge amount of hype and excitement within design and design disciplines at the moment about metaverses, about NFTs. But it's entangled with so many other things. And that has to be considered as well. Kazakhstan is a very extreme example of that. But I think, like you say, India, it does a it does a nice job of just showing quite how entangled digital and physical systems are, and escaping into the digital isn't leaving behind uh, the physical world. It it always leaves its mark. 
Well, from the digital and into physical realities, our second story this month was the news that Salone del Mobile, for anyone who doesn't know, it's the big trade fair for design hosted in Milan every year in April. For the past few weeks, it has been rumoured that Salone would have to move its 2022 edition after the spread of Omicron throughout Europe. And last week, it was announced that Salone would indeed be joining to June. That's not necessarily a surprising change. Most of the other trade fairs have taken similar measures. So IMM Cologne has been cancelled until 2023. Maison en Objet has moved from January to March. And the Stockholm Furniture and Light Fair has moved from February until September. Yeah, and like you said, this isn't necessarily surprising. I think it was nicely optimistic for everyone to schedule everything in its normal place in 2022. I mean, Omicron has shown us that even vaccinations and prior infections are not enough to keep a population, you know, completely immune to coronavirus. Right, but it goes to it goes to show this this is now the third year in a row, effectively, from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two. Design's fair calendar has been in chaos, and I think as a result of that chaos and things constantly moving, there's been a lot of discussion about fairs in general. Like, what's their purpose? Do we need them? Are they useful? Now, the limitations of these things are fairly well known. We know that they're expensive for people travelling there, for the brands exhibiting. We know that companies can get lost in the shuffle when you're looking at huge exhibition halls. Smaller companies can... um, They they pale in significance to some of the huge stands being put on by the bigger brands. And the other side is the environmental impact, of course. If you're flying people in from all around the world to one city, that's an awful lot of travel. And the fair itself... Typically, there's a lot of waste in these things. The stands are built and then at the end are just scrapped. They're not necessarily reused or anything like that. So I think over the last few years, we've seen a lot of this. Well, the fairs aren't happening anyway, but is that necessarily a problem? Do we need fairs any longer? Yeah, well, there was this kind of hot minute back when the pandemic was new, whenever on it seemed uh, was really keen to embrace digital alternatives that yeah, for all those reasons you said that fairs are wasteful, that it's, you know, the same people shuffling around in one carnival for the calendar year. But I mean, maybe it's just because people got lonely that they all want to see each other again. Or, you know, I, I think they there have been some drawbacks to these events all moving online. Yeah, I think so. I think, to be honest, none have been done particularly well yet. We say, oh, well, can't we have a digital trade fair instead? Well, what does that mean? What is a digital trade fair? Because presumably that's not just modelling the exhibition hall online and you can walk around on your keypad and stare at things. You know, I don't think that's what anyone has in mind. But then what is it exactly? How do you do it? How do you get all the benefits? The great advantages of trade fairs is it sets up a platform which has a big audience coming, which brands can make the most of. They can be seen by a huge number of buyers in one place. They can make deals more quickly and easily. These things have issues and the fairs themselves are well aware of them. But they remain a really important economic driver for the industry. And I think they haven't really been fully replaced. I I don't think any of the digital alternatives at present, are particularly running them close. 
yeah, I think we haven't found a way of, yeah, one, people making those personal connections online and, like you said, people kind of uh, getting an equal slice of the pie attention-wise, but also I think a lot of of deals are, are cut when people are kind of face-to-face with each other, which is a problem because face-to-face is also how this virus spreads. <laughs> but it also shows this period has seen a lot of companies experiment with different things and try out the digital and there have been some impressive examples. I think Vitra, for instance, has invested quite a lot in putting out digital publications, in running digital events. And as far as I can tell, they've worked quite well. I don't, I don't know as a comparison of sales figures. I don't think Vitra releases that information. So it's hard to make a direct comparison. But at least from the outside, they seem positive. But, you know, of course it's been positive. It's Vitra. It's a well-known brand with budget so they can actually invest in these things and they have a ready-made audience they can send these things out to. If you're a smaller company and are suddenly being told, don't worry about the fares, just use digital, like where do you begin? Where do you build their audience? Because it's not like consumers are just randomly stumbling on your sort of digital output necessarily. That's the great advantage of a fair. It directs people towards you. Some of the work is done for you. Whereas I think this idea of a sort of digital only approach, it's a huge ask for a lot of companies. And I don't think it's hugely realistic. Yeah, and this I think this connects to what you were saying earlier about Activision as well. It's it's going to turn into a lot of digital gatekeeping if you have to already have a big platform to be heard um and i think as design journalists as the kind of hangers-on of this world it's hard for us to find new talent new people to write about to you know spark off those ideas because if you are just going to do your research purely digitally um, or through your established network you're not going to necessarily be finding new and different people or people who aren't already plugged into that same virtual space. Yeah and I think one of the great virtues of a trade fair is the sort of internationalism of it right? It's an opportunity to see brands from countries where perhaps you don't have the best network but can begin to make a connection there. Yeah and this kind of leads us on to what I see as kind of one of the big problems that's going to be facing the design world is this threat to our internationalism. I know that when the first Saloni was postponed, um, they were very concerned because a huge amount of that market now is from China and China was shut down and China remains shut down. Zero Covid policy. Yeah, exactly. Whereas um, the West, especially Europe, has adopted this policy really of, you know, maybe the occasional lockdown, the occasional travel um, red list, but mainly the people are free to move about, especially for business reasons. Whereas, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand and China are, are keeping their doors firmly shut. I can kind of see us going back to quite a siloed way of, of of operating yeah i think the situation we're in at the moment is 
it's so precarious because it absolutely makes sense for these fairs to delay. It's impossible to run a big fair at present in these circumstances. You kind of need to wait until the health situation is a little bit better. But it just has ramifications. Like you say, if international guests are finding it very difficult to attend, that's a real problem. The other problem is it just leads to calendar congestion. The way in which the design calendar has typically been structured is these fairs happen at different times so as not to compete with one another. So you have IMM in January. Okay, you have Maison in January as well, then Stockholm February, Salone in April, London in September, and so on. As things are moving, you're starting to get clashes. So Salone is now in June, which is the same time as Three Days of Design, which is a much smaller festival. It's Copenhagen's design festival. But it's been really growing for the past few years. And suddenly this year, it's audience potentially could be heavily cut by the fact that people will be heading to Salone instead. Okay, this it's exceptional circumstances, but it looks like going forward, we're going to be having COVID with us for a long time. So do you start to reach a situation where effectively you say, we just can't stage fairs in the winter months, because we know that this is when virus transmission tends to get worse, it's just not possible. So suddenly you might be having to try and cram all of these festivals into the more clement weather. And that's really tricky. How do you do that? How do you fit everything in? This is going to have long-term effects. I think there will be changes to that calendar possibly, but trying to reorganise everything so it works for, for all of the fairs, all of the exhibitors, all of the visitors, that's pretty tricky. And now on to some shorter and snappier, but no less exciting uh, design stories. Mm, That sounds terrific. Well, to kick us off, I know that I'm obsessed. I think you're obsessed. I think this is one of my favourite design stories. Well, I mean, of the year is not exactly a a huge (laughs) crowning achievement thing. So they're only three to four weeks You've declared it early. (laughs) You've put your flag in the ground. (laughs) It is Wordle, the five-letter word game craze. For those of you who've been living under a rock, it is a website that every day releases a word-guessing challenge. Um, You type in your first five-letter word, you've got six guesses. If you guess the right letter, it goes green if it's in the right place, yellow if it's the right letter, but you've got the wrong place. It's Super fun, super addictive. Everyone... It's very addictive. I wake up in the middle of the night and play it sometimes. <gasps> You're a midnight wordler. Well, more like a 3am wordler when uh, my anxiety takes over and I can no longer <laughs> sleep. It's a really nice piece of design, though, because, I mean, one of the things which is noteworthy about it is it's not monetized in any way. It's the creation of Jane... James? No. Josh Wardle, a software engineer who created it for his partner. So there's no advertising. It's really nice that you can only play it once a day. It's an example of sort of digital design. It really bucks a lot of the trends we're seeing in that space at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing. We say it's addictive, but you can't get addicted to it. You get it once a day. That's that. You can share your score online. You can text it to your friends. um, And that's it. You're cut off for the next 24 hours. Josh Wardle can be very cheeky sometimes though. The other day the other day he played he he made the word prick and I thought oh gosh is he allowed to is he allowed to do that? And, well, you know, yeah, of course there are there are different different meanings to that word, but I must admit I thought of the 
I thought of the naughty meaning and thought, that's very blue, Josh Wardle. I thought that might have been a, a clap back, as the youth say, against Loodle, which is one of these Wordle clones, but you only guess rude, naughty words and swears. Oh. Um, because they have been a lot of pretenders, some more genuine than others. There was the kind of initial rush where a lot of people essentially reskinned it as an app for money-making purposes and sold it on the App Store, which, interestingly, Apple cracked down on pretty quickly. I actually fell for that, though, because when I started hearing about Wordle, I didn't know uh, what it was or how you accessed it. So I thought I, I just naturally assumed it would be an app because everything's an app. So I was playing just a completely... It wasn't even like the same game. They'd just taken the name. So for a while I was playing just this random word game. I I don't know why everyone likes this so much. It's not that good. So I suppose Wordle sort of shows the best and the worst of digital design, doesn't it? In, In what Josh Wardle has done, wonderful. I wish more digital designers would take that cue. But on the other hand, you have the industry rapidly racing in to clone and monetize and all of these pretty grubby tactics, really. So Wordle, uh, a complicated beast. Yeah, although some of the reskins, I would say, are not um, necessarily uh, are terrible thieves and attention uh, stealers. There are people who are adapting it for different languages, which is pretty exciting, especially as that produces all kinds of different challenges. You know, for example, Tamil is uh, quite syllables based and you need up to 50 guesses in order to to accurately guess a word or I think for example Portuguese it's easier to do six letter words than five letter words so there are people who are making it accessible to non-English speaking languages which I think is one of the fun kind of design challenges. So one of the stories which really caught my imagination this month and to be honest, I, I think it caught people's imaginations around the world, was the transplant of a genetically modified pig's heart into a man. So this was a procedure carried out by the Cardiac Transplant Programme at the University of Maryland Medical Centre, uh, where Dr Bartley Griffith led a team to transplant a pig's heart into the body of David Bennett Sr., who was a cardiac patient who had exhausted all other treatment options. Uh, This was a world first. They've done xenotransplantation before, but it hasn't worked in the long run. Um, These organs and tissues are typically rejected pretty quickly. So to try and limit that, the team used uh, gene editing software to switch off certain genes in a pig's heart, the genes which would tell it to rebel if put in the body of a man. And I think they also added some genes to make it... um, more sort of pliable to uh, pliable to human bodies. So it's kind of an amazing achievement. And at least at the time of recording, my understanding is David Bennett Sr. is doing well and it, it continues, uh, continues to work. One thing that fascinates me is why pigs? Because I didn't think that, are we genetically close to pigs? Do we have a similar vascular system? The most naturally courageous animal and you get its courage if you take its heart. So David Bennett Sr. is filled with piggy courage. 
my understanding of why they use a pig is approximately similar size and obviously pigs grow much faster and are far more abundant than say something closer like an orangutan or a chimpanzee. Yeah, well, also I can imagine the PR of just taking hearts out of orangutans because you also don't want something that's too close in your kind of primate cousins to be cannibalizing them for their body parts. But I think I think one of the things to say is this is a really important design story because I think it stresses more than anything that biological matter is now effectively a design medium. I mean, we covered this all the way back in decennia 14 in an essay by um, Christina Rabatsky, formerly of this parish, who, who wrote about the history of humans designing animal life. Some of the new technologies like CRISPR are very explicit. That's what you're doing. You can change organs to suit your purpose. You have the potential to adjust them. It really is a whole new frontier for design. It's New Year in terms of the Gregorian calendar, but for those of us who For my observe... money, the best calendar. Okay, well, the lunar calendar is um, is coming up soon. Um, so this is the calendar that's observed by a lot of Asia, especially China. Uh, we are going into the year of the tiger, which is very exciting, except if you're a tiger, because it's, um, it's not actually very lucky in the year of your birth unfortunately oh i didn't know that no it's not but it's looking it's looking like it's going to be good for for monkeys so i'm happy but of course a lot of uh luxury brands are very keen to expand and consolidate their markets in china which has led bottega veneta to um take out what i imagine is the largest billboard uh advert in the world i mean don't quote me, but I don't think you can get larger than the Great Wall of China. I saw this. It's a digital screen stretched across quite a big expanse of it, right? And it sort of alternates between Bottega Veneta and their trademark green and orange and then wishing people a happy Lunar New Year. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can see the Great Wall from space. I don't think you're going to be able to see these screens from space, but it's a big stretch. Mm. Uh, you can only really comprehend it when you look at drone photography of the screen and it you know it's not something that you're not going to walk past it and and see it in its entirety it's it's stunt advertising i would say <laughs> well it is and one thing which is quite interesting is Bottega Veneta has really overhauled its approach to marketing recently so they got rid of all of their traditional social media accounts because they want people to be they want people to be sharing Bottega Veneta things spontaneously on social media rather than being seen to direct it. And so they've done a couple of other stunt-like things like this Great Wall of China. So I think they've taken out adverts on rooftops near LA's LAX airport so people see it as they're taking off and landing in the city. So I suppose in some ways it's quite an innovative and interesting thing to do, but I hate it. I hate it so much. I'm genuinely quite scandalised that you can use the Great Wall of China as a billboard. I just, I feel something's gone wrong if that can happen. If you can book the Great Wall of China to stick your logo on. I mean, it it feels faintly perverse. Yeah, is it because it's history? I mean, 
I can think of a few cases where art installations have been put on kind of historic buildings or monuments, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of all of those poppies that they did around the towers, the Tower of London, but then, then you can say it's art, it's not mm. pure commerce. You know, are they going to start projecting light shows onto the pyramids of Giza? Yeah, I think it, I think it, I suppose it's just that commodification of all elements of culture that, whether rightly or not, you do tend to think of those big historical monuments as kind of sacred cows, like you have to protect them at all costs. And to realise, oh, no, actually, they are they are for sale for the right price, I think is faintly depressing. And I know lots of fashion brands have done similar things. They've hosted runway walks on the Great Wall in the past, for instance, or um, at sort of the um, Trevi Fountain in Rome. I think Fendi has put something on. But somehow it feels slightly different. And I suppose it's because a catwalk, okay, a huge element of commerce involved. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not I'm not under the sort of misguided perception that these things are entirely artistic. But they do have an element of artistry to them. Like the artistry behind the clothes is amazing, like the making of them. And I think if you strip out that element and it's literally... No, we're just going to project the logo onto onto the Great Wall of China or onto the Colosseum or whatever. It it feels just beyond the pale. It feels it feels that oh wow, something's gone quite badly wrong in our culture if if that's sort of seen as exciting and cool. And the ostentatiousness of the branding, I think, is something that rankles. And uh, it also made me think of. Um... To celebrate the tennis open, Adidas and Parley for the Oceans have had this kind of long-running collaboration. They often do something. Lots of shoes made from reclaimed ocean plastic and things like that, yeah. The year before, they built a tennis court right down by the ocean, which kind of had both of their logos slapped on them. But um, did you see what they did this year? They made a floating tennis court, didn't they, out of ocean plastic for the Australian Open? and uh, floated it over the Great Barrier Reef. Which I think actually is even more gross than putting screens on the Great Wall of China, because at least the Great Wall of China was a man-made intervention. And actually, if you're going to put on your kind of um, nation uh, building lenses, you know, it is a border wall. It was erected to uh, enact the violence of cutting across a geographical boundary whereas the great barrier reef even though we've given it the name barrier that is a naturally occurring uh phenomenon a beautiful rich and diverse habitat that has been killed off by human activity the coral's been bleached it's it's under huge risk from human activity so to kind of put your logo over over a naturally occurring wonder i think is is even grimmer than doing it (laughs) On on the Great Wall of China. Oh, see, I don't mind it so much because, I mean, they were just floating over it. It wasn't like this year to mark the Australian Open, Adidas has equipped Roger Federer to swim down and smash up as much of the Great Barrier Reef with his racket as he can within a timeline. (laughs) But I I know what you mean. I, I I guess it's that thing of 
it feels quite greenwashy, doesn't it, to sort of do this court. And I mean, the court was donated afterwards to a school for kids to play on. And that's great. That's really good to sponsor sports equipment for children. But it's clearly an attempt to position Adidas as, you know, a leader in environmental causes. And if you're in the business of sort of fast fashion and sportswear, you have a pretty big environmental footprint. And I know they are trying to do something about that, but I think it would be more refreshing if they just put in case, put in place, sorry, concrete business proposals of what they're going to do and how they're going to improve their footprint rather than floating tennis course courts. <laughs> yeah, and this is the problem with all sort of like activism and raising awareness. Like we've got the awareness. Your average person on the street could probably tell you that the oceans are filling with plastic and it's bad news. The problem is, is that once it's in the ocean, it's too late. Like it's impossible to get it out. We know this from like the ocean cleanup project, not really working out that the plastic is actually getting into the waterways from rivers, but, you know, it's not as sexy to be picking crisp packets out of the canal as it is to be floating some very attractive Olympic athletes out over the Great Barrier Reef. So we're beginning to come to the end of our time with you today, Critters. But we're moving on to our products and projects categories to speak about a few recent launches and installations that have caught the eye and which we think are worth checking out. The first one I want to bring up is uh, hasn't actually launched this month, uh, it launched last year, but it's been getting a lot more attention because it's had a chance to get out there a little bit more and to become available in a few more markets. This is the Framework Modular Laptop. India, do you know Framework at all? I do a bit. I am still a bit hazy on the details, but the modular side of it has me pretty excited. So this is the laptop that you can build yourself and repair yourself, more importantly, compared to your, uh, especially your Apple Macs, where everything is kind of kept behind a smooth frame or your PC, which probably requires specialist knowledge to build yourself your own rig. This is a commercially available laptop that you can you can customise. Yeah, exactly. So it's an attempt to move that kind of desktop model where it's pretty familiar, the idea of people making their own machines, upgrading them, repairing them as they go along, to laptops, which traditionally have been viewed much more as hermetically sealed units. If something goes wrong with your laptop, it's really hard to fix. On my laptop at the moment, I'm having a hell of a time typing the letter B. That's a really difficult... <laughs> <laughs> repair to make. Fortunately, I don't need to use it too often. But framework has been designed such that you can just take elements out, slot new elements back in. Everything can be done using just a screwdriver, which is included in the box. So it's a sort of riposte e-waste, I suppose. It's a way of saying we ought to be designing uh, consumer electronics because if they're to justify the embodied carbon they need to last a long time, then we need to facilitate that. If something goes wrong, you should be able to fix it and just replace that. If you want a new one or to change something, you shouldn't have to throw out everything you've already got. Yeah, I think it's really exciting and I'm very um, enthused by the kind of right to repair movement and if this becomes a kind of household name, a household object, I think 
it could be um, a real step forward for kind of allowing us to keep the technology that we've become accustomed to, but to have it in a way that doesn't mean that we're constantly cycling through new phones, new computers every time one becomes so broken that it would be more costly to repair it rather than just replace it. And I think the thing which has really encouraged me this month is we've started to see the arrival of a couple of third-party expansion modules for it, which is kind of essential because if this was just one company putting it out, it's not going to make that much difference. But if you can get a whole ecosystem of people around it who are developing for it and creating new things, suddenly that feels like a much more exciting proposition. So keep your eyes on the framework. So from high tech to low tech, my product launch of the month is uh, something that doesn't sound sexy and glamorous, but I'm prepared to, to set up my stall for it. It's a dustpan and broom set uh, that was made for the Japanese brand Muji by uh, Milanese studio Studio Irvine. What's caught your eye about it? I assume you aren't attracted to all dustpans and brushes, so there must be something pretty special about this one. Well, no, I mean, dustpan and brushes, I think, are one of the least attractive household objects. There's always one that's stuck under the sink that's got some, like, unidentified crud in it. They're always kind of grim and gross and confined to dusty cupboards. Or you can get a fancy one, but, it, you know, it has, like, a brush on a stick and it's kind of closer to a broom. Like, I don't think it's a true dustpan and brush. And we all know brooms are incredibly sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I could I could launch into my uh, TED talk about broomsticks and witches and um, psychedelics, but that is perhaps for an entirely different podcast. Obviously, audio medium trying to describe a visual product. It's this kind of beautiful, um, almost funnel or vase shaped uh, construction where the the pan kind of tips forward on that lip so that it stands up and then the as with most dustpan and brushes the brush clips in but the brush has this kind of lovely angledness to the fibers so it's um it's kind of a little sculptural object but it's not fussy it's not prissy in the kind of the pictures that they've released of it it's shown displayed on shelves alongside all sorts of objects and uh, design pieces which you know I might not be putting my dustpan and brush out on a shelf for everyone to see but I appreciate the sentiment. And I think it's also worth saying, it's just really nice to see great work continuing to come out of Studio Irvine, because Studio Irvine, uh, founded by the late, great designer James Irvine, who very sadly died in 2013, uh, the studio has continued under the leadership of his partner, the designer Maria Laura Rossiello Irvine, and just a really good, I think, feel-good story to see them doing excellent work and that legacy being continued. The final project we want to flag up is a new exhibition coming in February from the designer Mac Collins. Now, Mac was the inaugural winner of the Design Museum in London's Ralph Saltzman Prize, which comes with the £5,000 bursary and a chance to share their work at the museum. Now, what Mac is doing is he's taking over the mezzanine space at the museum and he's going to th show three of the chairs he's designed since graduating. The Iklar Lounge Chair, 
Jupiter's chair, which he created for the new craftsman, and Concur, a chair which he designed for AHEC and Wallpaper's Discovered project. Yeah, this is a really nice story because Mac has kind of been the 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 poster kid, the up and coming uh, name to watch in design for the past kind of year, eighteen months or so. So it's nice to see him actually getting more than just appearances and getting an exhibition in his name. And I don't know. I mean, we we laugh about chairs being uh, overdone, as it were, in design, but it's fun to see a a fresh young voice doing something with chairs that's that's getting headlines, that's getting attention. I think his Iqlaa lounge chair from 2018 remains one of the best chairs I've seen in recent years. That feels interesting. has a really interesting form. Uh, it was stained a sort of deep blue colour, just visually very arresting. And there was also a really interesting cultural narrative behind it around immigration and sort of cultural heritage and things like that. So... I think Mac is a is a talent to watch. We actually have an interview with him up on the website at the moment and he has some exciting projects coming up which are worth checking out. I would say it's a good opportunity to go and see the chairs he's designed because Mac's interested in trying some other things in future. That's not to say he's not going to do any more chairs. I'm sure he is. But he's definitely someone who I think is attuned to. He'd like to look at some different areas. So Maybe this is a good point to take stock and just see what he's done to date. So from one crow host to another, I think uh, that just about covers it. We've got a whole flock of design stories there and um, we've, we've kicked off the year with a bang. Yeah, I was, I was going to try and do a sort of um, a pun, like say, we're owl, no, instead of we're out, but it doesn't work. Owl isn't close enough to out. <laughs> I couldn't think of a bird that was. I, I've blown it, I'm afraid. Uh, we could make a swift exit. <laughs> well, we will be back next month once I've had a chance to prep some puns. Uh, in the interim, you can stay in touch with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. We are now using the handles of our parent journal, Desenio. So we are on at Desenio Journal. Or if you want to email us with ideas for the show, you can reach us on thecrypt at desenojournal.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crypt, which was co-hosted by me, Ollie Stratford, and India Block. It was produced and edited by Evie Hall. All music for The Crypt has been created by Yori Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram, and our logo was designed by Leonard Rothmeiser. 